0: the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew. Then Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who were selling and buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple And he cured them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the amazing things that he did and heard the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became angry and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies You have prepared praise for yourself. He left them, went out to the city of Bethany, and spent the night there. This is the gospel of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts help us to live and love like you, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. There was an article that came out last week, and it seems to have struck a nerve with a lot of people, and it's been circulating around. It started from a series of tweets by Dr. Aisha Ahmad, a professor of political science at the University of Toronto. She is an expert in disaster zones, or disaster zone political zones, And she says that the six-month mark in any sustained crisis is always difficult. We have adjusted to the new normal, but feel as though we are losing steam. This feeling looks a lot like a desire to escape or the make-it-stop mentality. Do you feel it? But the problem is, is that in the middle of a global pandemic, there's not really any place to escape to. And make it stop just doesn't work. So our first few weeks were filled with adrenaline. At, week, at month three or four, we thought that we figured it out. But then we're here. At month six, boom, we hit a wall. In the beginning, it seems like we all prioritized the things that mattered most, right? Our family, because we couldn't really go anywhere from them, being outside, getting a walk-in, turning on the TV and watching church on a Sunday morning instead of being in person, being engaged with friends in a different way. But now, now little to none of those things have stuck around. It's a wall. And we feel like we are, going, we're, we are waking up to the same thing every single day. That we're asking ourselves the same questions over and over again. When is this going to be over? Well, there is some good news. Because she's been through this a couple times, she has some advice to, for us to get through this short-lived phase. The first is to realize... It's completely normal. You're in good company. There's a lot of other people who feel the exact way that you might. Everyone I mentioned this sixth wall to this week agreed that the, about the feeling. But we also have to realize that it is just that. It is short-lived. There are some things that she gave us to help us along um, this time so that we can get over that wall like taking a what she calls a shore leave, starting a new book or a new TV show that can take you away right in your living room. Tackle less challenging projects during this time. Don't beat yourself up as you try to ram your head through the wall. It doesn't work that way. But maybe instead, give yourself some grace. But the most important thing that she said, is that we need to recenter, to refocus and reprioritize. What better time than now? Those things that you did in the beginning to keep yourself sane, will start them again. Take a walk after dinner, pick up a Bible study, sit down for a family dinner, have a movie night, tune back in, and more consistently on Sunday mornings. Prioritizing is crucial for mental endurance. Prioritizing is also important in our gospel lesson today. In our reading from Matthew, Jesus has just experienced the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where he was proclaimed as Hosanna in the highest, our scene normally from Palm Sunday. And then Jesus enters into the temple and he sees what's going on there. He gets angry, and he wants wants God's house to be honored as a place of prayer, of worship, of adoration to God, not a marketplace. He sees a problem, and he confronts it head-on, quoting the prophet Jeremiah. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Now, if we are honest, we see this image of Jesus walking into a sanctuary and it is overrun by corrupt money changers and slimy salespeople. Jesus' anger takes over and he drives them all out of the sanctuary. Now, although some of that is true, it's more important for us to take a closer look at what the temple culture of that time was really like. The temple was a large area. It was made up of more than its sanctuary. It was a whole complex of buildings and courts that made up an entire quarter. There were separate divisions or courts for Jewish men, for Jewish women, and for the general public, including those that were not Jewish or the Gentiles. During that day and age, Jesus could not even enter the sanctuary proper, that space was reserved for priests and for, the t- and for the high priest of the day. So this encounter that we see in this gospel lesson doesn't happen in a sanctuary. Instead, it happens out in the large court of the Gentiles where animals were sold for sacrifice and money was exchanged into an acceptable currency for gifts to the temple. Now, as weird as it might sound to us, both of these practices were necessary and valuable since sacrificial animals could not be easily brought from a distance. And if they were, they would have to be certified and approved by a temple priest. And foreign currency, well, it had the face of somebody else on it, and they considered it idolatry. Other gods to worship besides the God of Israel, making it inappropriate for temple use. Because of that, both selling animals and exchanging money was a necessity. But it could have been, and most likely was, subject to some abuse. But in the Gospel of Matthew, there's no evidence of that abuse because if we take a closer look at the very first verse of our gospel reading, uh, verse 12, it says this. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who were selling and buying in the temple. Did you catch that? Jesus doesn't just drive out those, peop- those sellers and money changers— but he also drives out the buyers and those people trading money. We might link then the shady business practices to the verse from Jeremiah when Jesus quotes about a den of robbers. But even a den of robbers doesn't refer to dishonest trade in the temple. Instead, in its original context, Jeremiah's den of robbers was directed at those who came to worship there for the wrong reasons, rather than the ones who are selling animals or changing money. It's not their business practices that Jesus was upset with, but instead it's their location that got Jesus angry. They had their priorities wrong. Now, it's important to pause here and to look at two different and distinct actions that Jesus is doing during this gospel text. The first is, is that Jesus casts out. He casts out those who are buying and selling and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those selling doves. But just as as quickly as Jesus casts out Jesus also immediately invites in and welcomes those who had been neglected and excluded in this temple culture, the blind, the lame, children. He listens to their shouts. He heals them and cures them of what had been a boundary before so that they too could come to this house of prayer and be in the presence of God and community. Jesus says, Those who are marginalized in the world are central in my eyes. That's how it's supposed to be. Jesus sets new priorities in his Father's house by who he's casting out and by who he lets enter in. Like every human organization, the temple, the Father's house, the church for that fact, is in constant danger of corruption right as soon as power and wealth comes to those places there could be manipulation misuse of influence outright corruption as well so how do we prevent that from happening well i think that we follow the example of jesus just that simple we cast out what needs to be cast out and we welcome in those on the margins by focusing on the poor, the outcast, widowed, orphaned, diseased, we will become faithfully the body of Christ, a house of prayer, a place of mutual concern, love, and peace. Because priorities had to be reestablished. Tables had to be overturned. Order had to be restored. The temple had to be cleansed. Jesus named the problem and refused to let it continue. There might have been chaos, as you can imagine, money flying everywhere, animals running free, and screams from all sides, wondering what was going on. This was not the gentle Jesus that we are used to seeing. This was a display of anger against a system that was set up to displace God as the focus of worship and praise— but it was also to a system that displaced people from access to God, worship, and community. Today, the gospel presents an important question that we should ask ourselves in the middle of our own six-month wall. Where have we made something other than God our priority? Where has God been displaced in our hearts, in our work, in our community, in our church, and in our world? Because anything that we set up that displaces God is nothing more than the money that was worshiping another God. It competes for our attention and demands our worship and praise. Idols give us the illusion of control. And so we have a choice before us. We either seek to own and control what we believe is ours or we steward what is God's. Now I'm going to tell you, owning and controlling brings fear and bondage. But being good and faithful stewards of all that God has given us brings freedom and peace. So over the next three weeks, we will be talking about stewardship, giving back to God what God has first given to us as we approach Consecration Sunday. Our hope and our prayer is that this time gives all of us an opportunity to look at our lives and refocus, recenter, and reprioritize the things that matter most to us. A German writer Johann Wolfgang von Goethe grasped the importance of priorities when he said this: "Things which matter most must never be at the mercy of things which matter least." Or the author Stephen Covey in his bestseller The 7 Habits of Highly Effective People puts it in this way: "As a longtime student of this fascinating field of life and time management, I'm personally persuaded that the essence of the best thinking in the area of time management can be captured into a single phrase. Organize and execute your priorities. He later wrote that one of his favorite essays is the common denominator of success. The author spent his life searching for the one denominator that all successful people shared, and he found it wasn't hard work or good luck or astute human relations, though those were all important, but the one factor that seemed to transcend all the rest was putting first things first. Maybe this is most evident in looking at the priorities of Jesus that we see in Philippians chapter 2, who did not look at his own interests, but instead to the interests of others. And though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself. Taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Our ultimate priority should be to empty ourselves, not look at our own interests, but what is best for others, and give our whole life back to God, the creator, who gave us life and breath, who gave us our time, our talents, and our treasures. So maybe the most important question that we ask ourselves right now is what do you need to cast out in order to welcome in the things that are most important. Amen.